you can continue on the trajectory you're on, or you can get much better. And the trick is to turn it into a turning point, right? To say, this is the crisis in which we actually are going to shift. And all ends of wars are made of that. That is what it is to say, today, we choose to deal with our differences by putting the guns down and going to vote. That is a fascinating and incredible miracle in the world, but it happens again and again and again, and it can happen here. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Neelan Parker, Executive Director of Common Ground USA, the U.S. part of Search for Common Ground, the world's largest peacekeeping organization. It's a sign of the times that Search for Common Ground thought they needed to spend more attention working on the United States. And in Neelan, they found a good person to head that effort. We had a really good conversation about her career, the key challenges to peace within the U.S. these days, and what she's up to at Common Ground USA. I enjoyed talking to Neelan, and I think you'll like hearing from her too. So after our sponsor, my interview with Neelan Parker of Common Ground USA. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Neilan, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Neilan Parker. I'm the executive director for Common Ground USA at Search for Common Ground. And I've had about 15 years of experience working in countries in conflict and political transitions before returning to the United States to work on polarization here, both as the founder of the Bridge and Divides Initiative at Princeton University and now at Search for Common Ground. It's a really crucial time for that kind of work. Maybe this and the Civil War are the biggest times in our history that I can think of where the threats to the basic structures are real, I guess. Tell me just a little bit about how you grew up and your education and how this became the kind of thing that you tackled in the long run. I think maybe not surprisingly, I'm from a Civil War town in the U.S. in Appalachia, Lexington, Virginia. It had two generals who fought for the Confederacy, Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And the long tale of conflict and the sort of 150 years later, that kind of the South will rise again, still existing in some parts of the social fabric, I think does something. It it affects you. It affected me. 
a combination of that growing up in that town uh, and seeing that kind of long legacy and how long it takes to to recover and reweave alongside an experience that I had when I was eight and I lived in my father's native Chile where Pinochet was being voted out of power and we were caught in some of the political violence there. So those two kind of formative experiences as a young person, we were going out for ice cream and there was a bombing that was totally unrelated to what we were doing. And so you, you had this sense of how politics at a national and international level deeply affect individual families. I think those two formative experiences are why when I you know fast forward a decade and a half, when I had a chance to choose what did I want to work on, I was very interested in not just the recovery from conflict, but the prevention of of being there, having to do that recovery. And I had a, a kind of early professional transformative experiences. Right after college, I was traveling up the East Coast of Africa. I had saved some money and I was traveling a little bit and the United States went into Iraq. I was in Tanzania at the time and in Arusha, Tanzania is the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. So I just started following cases there. And I happened to be there at a time when they were working on a transitional justice effort that was in a really tough moment. And the um, the defendants basically felt like it was impossible to do justice by their defense. And so they were about, I didn't know it at the time, they were about to go on strike. And so I got to watch not, not only these sort of like horrifying cases, but also the, the difficulty in trying to apply things like morality and justice and systems and governance in the aftermath of these really painful fissures of society. And in that case, it was a genocide. But that really, really impressed upon me how urgent prevention is and how important these moments before conflict are. So for me, working in the United States in some ways has been the marrying of my two childhood selves and the marrying of working internationally and being from the United States. Boy, I just find it to be I don't know, almost heartwarming when somebody's career works out to be at the intersection of true interests and something that matters to society. It's, it doesn't happen to so many people. And, you know, it's nice when you talk to someone. I mean, I have to tell you, I've had a pretty windy, windy career in there. The, all, the, all the things I didn't mention. <laughs> well, I think that's, I mean, I think, you know, just thinking about, you know, I have a kid in college and, and a, a, a younger daughter, both my daughters, you wonder what they'll turn into. And you hope that they will, uh, you know, ultimately move from Xeroxing or something to something that fits them. Yeah, if there's a period of time in which one of your kids is living in their car, that that could be totally <laughs> fine. <laughs> that could just be on the way to becoming. <laughs> so I have to ask you, at what point were you living in your car and how, what was that circumstance? That was after I, I left the tribunal for Rwanda and I applied for an internship. I had saved some money to do this traveling, but I didn't have a lot of it left over. And I really wanted to work on preventing conflict. So I got an internship as an intern in the conflict resolution to pro program at the Carter Center. 
and was just over the moon excited about it. And I had a place to live, uh, which I was sharing with a couple of other interns, but was just sort of not able to sustain that financially for a bit. So there was a period of time where I was between working in Venezuela and Mozambique and the US. And instead of getting short-term housing, I stayed in my car and I stayed on people's couches. And I'm incredibly indebted to many people who let me stay with them in that time. I think a lot of young people out of college go down a pretty safe route. It's less safe to travel the world and try internships in an area of passion. What was driving that? I mean, you could have, I don't know, immediately gone to law school or got a banking job. There's a million things to do. What was internal there? When people are asking for career advice, one of the things you do is just sort of replicate, here's what I've done. So uh, at the at the risk of doing that thing again, for people, I do think it's important for you to ask yourself, what is it that you need? What What makes you want to get up in the morning? And for some people, safety and the, and the kind of real need to feel like I'm going to be financially stable is a real driver. That financial piece has not ever been the thing that made me feel like I was on the right track. And I think part of it is I grew up with really loving parents and felt very safe and secure, even though I grew up with not uh, a lot of money. And when I was very young, my mom was on food stamps and things like that. But I never felt like I was at a loss for, for opportunity because of that. I felt like the things that I really needed was to feel like I was connecting with the world and connecting with my own sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, you studied in, in college religious studies and foreign affairs, which seems like a fit, but explain the religious studies part of that. Why that? I majored in Buddhism. I am not Buddhist, but I think probably some of that came from the fact that I am descended of five Southern Baptist missionaries and the way that people make decisions about their own moral interests and their own sort of like moral path and then how that applies to to kind of aggregating that at the state level and the interstate level that 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 those pieces were interesting to me. I think I've always been interested in how does change happen. And for me Buddhism was and is a philosophy that that resonates and where I find a lot of calm and a way of seeing connectedness between things. So, you know, it's, it's both interesting to me on the individual personal level, but it's also another aggregator, another way that like, it's all these people deciding for themselves. Here is a, a frame of faith and morality that I'm going to, to choose for how I see the world. But then religions themselves have institutions and in fact fight wars and make peace and do things on this incredible scale. It feels like there's something in Buddhist thought that one might take to working on conflict. Is there something there that you like employ, would you say, philosophically? I think there are a couple of things that are that really resonate. First of all, this notion of of trying to get right with yourself to be good in the world, I think is a really helpful one. And there is in in people who work in war or humanitarian disasters, there there is that that 
airplane saying of put your own air mask on before you try to help others. And in the acute sense, I think people understand that. But in the kind of um, really taking care of oneself as a contribution to taking care in the world, I think that that the whole workforce does fall short on that front. And so seeing it not only as as like, oh, I, I have to do this so that I can immediately do something good, but actually like one of the gifts that I put out in the world is to be able to absorb and reflect sunshine in a sense. I've appreciated that. Another thing that I've also appreciated is in a sense taking out of, of some of that black and white good and evil and this sense of the interconnectedness and how actions can have intended or unintended hurt for other things, but it is it is a kind of like natural ebb and flow in the world. And so once you stop making things or people evil, and instead you see them as walking a path for a period of time on this earth, you can deal with them differently. You see them differently. You, in a sense, you can work with that. Where does the MPA from Princeton fit in, in your career and in your training? I was working in Liberia two years after they signed a peace agreement on their post-conflict elections. It happened to be, I didn't know when I started, but the first democratically elected female head of state on the continent. I was working with the international community. I was at the Carter Center, had been actually hired by that point and given a salary and they'd flown me out to Liberia. And then while I was there, I switched over to working for the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, IFAS. And it was powerful stuff. I felt two things. I felt unqualified for the honor of working on such an incredible transition from such a bloody civil war into this moment which you hoped. And looking back with hindsight, that peace has held. But in that moment, it was unclear that it was going to do that. And I felt quite humbled and wanted to have more skills. I wanted to know what is the strategy because it's quite murky in the moment. It doesn't feel like, ah, we have succeeded. It feels like, oh God, please don't let this fall apart sometimes. I wanted to have a sense of what is what is that kind of strategic thinking? What is the policy thinking? How does this all come together? So that was one part of it. And I think another part of it was that I was disillusioned by some of that experience. And I was prepared for people in Liberia to have suffered serious trauma and bring that that and the pain and the hurt and some of the dysfunction that comes from that into actions. I was not prepared for dysfunction that the international community would bring with it. I wanted to know how do we do this better? How do we as humanity do this better? The combination of those things was my motivator for wanting to go to an education setting where you can ask, you know, in the moment, you don't have that reflective time. That's a real gift that academia gives. And I wanted to take advantage of that. Was it worth it? 
I mean, I have to say Princeton changed my life in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm a kid from, uh, in many ways, the middle of nowhere. And I think quite, quite wrongly, but nonetheless, um, uh, I went from being, I was actually told in, in the internship that I got, uh, at the Carter Center that, that, that every time the person who ran it always took like four people that looked perfect on paper and one person that was a wild card. (laughs) And I was the wild card. That's the way that I assumed that I would live in the world is just being that wild call. And, and in, in many ways I am, I'm a sort of, I'm a person who has never been central and been very comfortable with a lot of winding roads, but Princeton, I think the thing that I expected from Princeton is that it would be years in which I would have a chance to, to process that I got in, in spades. And one of my professors is a mentor and continues to be a friend and he was the chief of staff for UN peacekeeping. And so I got to go into his office and say, no, really, who's driving this train? And what do you think is happening? Because this is not what I felt was like happening. And that was incredible. Who was that? Salman Ahmed. He individually, I think, um, was a real lifesaver. He, I felt like he actually saw what I was talking about. I felt like uh, there is decency on the other end of this plan and that the failures to implement were not born of, of idiocy. They were sort of like taking a whole set of imperfect pieces and trying to turn them into something. And I, I, I came to understand the degree to which UN peacekeeping is asking other countries to send their sons and daughters into missions and that you have to grapple with what are the incentives there that get then placed into a country in conflict and and the various again traumas that are experienced on the on the front end of these things. So that alone I think was was absolutely worth it. The the place that I started to answer your question was was more along the lines of something that I didn't expect to get, which is that having a masters from Princeton allowed me to not have to be the wild card all the time and to be taken seriously. And that that part, I think, is true and shouldn't be. The first part, I think, is true, and I'm grateful for it. For better or worse, it is a significant credential in the world. And I I don't think people should always just run away from that and say maybe it shouldn't be because you do get they do pick a lot of really talented people and put them in an environment with a lot of top level professors and and resources. And if you're later on hiring somebody who's been through that experience, there is something to that. I'm a little loath to always be anti-elite when, you know, some kinds of training and, and some kinds of selectivity can indicate something. They don't always. And there's certainly great people who are the wild cards who don't have those credentials. A lot more that don't, I guess. But, you know, it does mean something. I take your point and I I just do think that in in our country in particular a country of of rising inequality for now, you know, multiple generations, the access to some of those pedigrees is is a lot harder and that as a society although those institutions are working harder and harder to change the composition of who gets in and and a lot of them are succeeding far more than they did before. Yeah, but, yeah. No, I, 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 I'm not going to disagree with you there. In fact, I, I think I'm a product of the university trying to do that very thing. And 
and I actually know from multiple personal experiences how important that is to to Princeton in particular. And so I I will not argue the counterpoint on that. <laughs> so you were at USAID um, for several years during Obama. Tell me about that. Well, it was my first experience working in government. Have you worked in government before? I have not. I have studiously avoided it. I've married someone who, who worked uh, for 13 years for the federal government. And like my friend and my friend, I don't know if you knew Nisha Desai. Yes. Yes. Wonderful human. Well, that's funny because I was interviewing someone yesterday, Kate Gage, who worked there. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and then I asked her about Nisha. And Nisha is a, a good friend, she and her husband and kids, and we vacationed together recently. And so when someone is at USAID in that time period, I'm like, well, do you know, <laughs> do you know Nisha? And, and like, you know, she and, was, and, a, and, she, and she was assistant secretary of state and things like that. And so it's kind of fun to hear about people's experience in government, but I personally have dodged it. I appreciate your dodging it. I also will say, and I think you'll appreciate this from having married into the, to the family. I think that government is just chock full of unsung heroes. Yes. And that it is like a beautiful, full of humble individuals that have seeded their own. And actually of- who are working hard. Like one of my wife's pet peeves is like how hard she worked and how hard the people around her worked and how smart they were. This was at National Institute of Standards and Technology at the Advanced Technology Program, Amazing. but like, and at the Department of Commerce. But yes, like it is, and it's full of of important, useful missions that that we savage in our politics a lot, which just drives me nuts, you know, and is part of the dysfunction that that we're going to go on to talk about, I think. Right. But tell me, tell me a little bit about your experience. Yes. Well, as you know, I think it can be very satisfying to to kind of like come with with frustration and demonstrate those huge feelings. And it is really hard to say, I am so frustrated that I'm going to go in and try to edit another memo. And <laughs> that is how I work out my frustration today. But that is that is like these incredibly passionate people who in fact do see the problems and are are the sort of like first defense of trying to actually live out these missions. I, I don't know who, who who the psychologist who studied this was, but, but there is someone who said, if you tell someone that this is their job, that they will actually attach to that and feel like that needs to be achieved. And so all of these people that we give basically impossible tasks to, and we say, that's your job, go, go do that job. And then they, they become punching bags. I have sort of like a soft spot, uh, as you maybe can tell, for, for the underdogs. <laughs> and, you know, I lived in New Jersey. I'm from Appalachia. I, now I live in the swamp. Like, I love bureaucrats. So, so I have, uh, I have that, that kind of feeling about my time at USAID. I feel like I met a lot of heroes and a lot of people who will not give up. And they have to suffer the psychological dissonance of of uh, being there to save the world, uh, kind of one memo at a time. (laughs) (laughs) What was like one uh, key thing that happened that you were part of when you were there? What was a crucial memo? 
<laughs> I think there were a lot, but I think one thing that was exceedingly hard while I was at USAID, the Arab Spring happened. And it was a moment where in a place in the world, there had not been political transitions for a long time. Just as a general rule, that kind of like North Africa, Middle East, the, the people who in the United States government really work on those spaces are not the people who work on political transitions because that, that kind of geographic expertise doesn't require that. So what my office did was only work on transitions and it did aid in countries in conflict, aid in political transition places. So we paired up with regional experts to try to get a sense of what was going on and what would be needed. And we're not at this part of the conversation yet, but one of the things that I will say is that that was good training for me for working in the United States. Unfortunately. How was HUD? (laughs) Somebody once before I started at HUD said, there is dysfunction, but it is magic. Wow. That's a great line. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that just so lovely? I, I, uh, and I think, I think that's right. HUD, HUD can be a political punching bag in the United States. Um, it's the only cabinet level agency that is fully dedicated to the poverty agenda. And so it's not the largest budget on poverty, but other cabinet level agencies can kind of look over here, not over here. Um, but when HUD goes to the Hill, all it has to talk about is trying to alleviate poverty. Sometimes that means that Republicans would want to decrease government funding. So lower budgets and Democrats would want us to do more with the budget that we had. So so either way, resources being stretched significantly. I think one of the things that I found profound and, and in, a, in a bit of a heartbreaking way is that we decide what we think the level of poverty is in the United States. And then we fund only one of every four people to have housing who meet that level of poverty. That's a tough thing, period, right? But when you realize that the constituency that is largest, that is most supported at HUD is children, I think that becomes even more hard. I found HUD to be one of those magical places where people were working on impossible things. And for me, it was incredibly just totally separate from like the gargantuan things we were trying to achieve. It was also a transition to here's what governing the United States looks like. And actually, that was my first time in a governing position in my own country. And uh, it was... So eye-opening. I'm so grateful that I that I did that. I also wish any person who is working overseas had experience working in their own country. It is, again, I feel like this is a theme throughout this conversation, but it was very humbling. And also, big things happened during the Obama administration. There was a 50% reduction in veteran homelessness across the country. And uh, that is coming out of a recession in the middle of all of these like trying moments, that that kind of big change was also happening. In some ways, government's the only thing that can really make change at scale. Yeah, one of the few yeah. things that we, and, and so we give it a really bad name for not being nimble, but things at that scale are rarely nimble. And in so many ways, actually, we don't want government to be nimble. We don't want it to sort of like pendulum from one place to another. There's a certain stability that it offers and that we require of it. And at the same time, it, it can and does, 
I think, make this incredible change at scale, exactly like you said. What was the position you had? I was chief of staff. So Sean Donovan hired me, and then he ended up shifting over to be director of the Office of Management and Budget. And I stayed to transition in a new secretary, Julian, Julian Castro, and then uh, was, at, was with him through the end of the administration. Tell me about being chief of staff. My wife was chief of staff to a undersecretary or assistant secretary or something. And she has a very good personality for that, I think. But not everybody does. What what do you th- tell me about that role and what you, what it requires of somebody? I'm so tempted to, to hear when you say, uh, I, w- I would love to hear if you don't mind, what is it that when you say your wife has the personality for that, what are the things that you're thinking about? What I'm thinking about is attention to detail, orderliness, enormous feeling of duty and uh, like attentiveness to like the carefulness with which she would write an email and make sure that if other eyes down the road saw it, that she had all of the things lined up and things that I am known for not having that competence. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I, 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 I got a lot of emails as a head of a company and I, and I, try to dispense with them with as few letters as possible. (laughs) Yes, yes. So I, I will say that one of my biases in the world is if I meet a chief of staff, I just think I'm going to like them. (laughs) (laughs) And that often appears to be right. Maybe because I think I'm going to like them and therefore I'm nice to them and vice versa. But actually I think there's something to it. And part of it is what the, what you said, but another part of it is that, no chief of staff is the same, that no no chief of staff role. There is no such thing as here is what a chief of staff does. You have to adapt to the principle. What, I, I don't mean to anticipate. The, the thing that every chief of staff has to do is to like seed a part of themselves <laughs> into making a collective between themselves and a principal work. And so you have to figure out what is my principal good at and what are they not good at and what holes do I fill for them? And then how do I also build a whole rest of a team to fill the things that I don't fill for them? And then in terms of in government, what is the job of the chief of staff? It's like when all the other things have failed, like when the problem has no obvious solution, uh, that rises to the chief of staff. And so those problems are often things that have two moral goods in competition with each other. So for example, there are two parts of HUD. One, there, well, there are many parts of HUD, but for, for the purpose of this story, there are two parts that are w- one that's working on getting as many people in housing as is possible immediately. And another that is trying to break the cycle of poor people being put in areas that are resource constrained, that perpetuate poverty, et cetera, et cetera. So these two entities are often in just a sort of like moral war with each other because one is trying to get as many people in houses as possible. And one is trying to say the places that you're going to put people as inexpensive as they are, are going to perpetuate this cycle. And so we need you to build fewer houses but put them in places where the outcomes for those people in them are going to be better. There was a regular negotiation between these two moral goods. Both entities were trying to do something 
good in the world on different time frames and often in ways that had to sort of like battle it out. That is the kind of stuff that would come to the chief of staff's table to try to work out. As you're talking about that, I'm recalling, and I may not get this exactly right, but I think part of the source of this podcast idea is Connie's idea that people like that ought to be known and celebrated for the work that they do, because it's a pretty anonymous world of tons of chiefs of staff doing vital work for the country that people don't, they don't, they know who, who is coming off the bench at at forward for the Golden State Warriors, which may not be as important to the world, but they certainly don't know. Uh, they don't, (laughs) I I mean, I, I I don't know how good your jump shot is, but (laughs) I can promise you not very good. (laughs) Well, you, you know, if you're a little taller and I'm sure somebody's doing it because the world is big, but we ought to know more about our own government and about the people who run it and what they're trying to do. And it's a shortcoming of our civic education and and just our priorities that we don't understand these people you're calling heroes as well as we should. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I do think... Um, I do think it would, in a sense, take the temperature down just across the board. It would be viewed right now as as the worst propaganda. I know. Yes. I mean, it's hard not to imagine people just being like, oh God, I can't believe we're spending money to, to help people get housing. They should get their own damn housing. Everything would get viewed through the lens of, of crazy that we have. Mm. Yeah. I think, which is, which is part of why we will fall short in polarization is that you end up naturally inclining to to distrust things that deserve an exploration. Could this be a solution too? And I think on both sides, like maybe on one side more than the other, at least speaking for myself, more on the left, can miss ideas coming from the right that might actually uh, help. I, I have seen that happen. How did the Trump victory hit you? Well, I was working in the Obama administration And I think there was a real sense, Washington, D.C., I think, voted something like 94% for Hillary as a city. And I think there was a sense for a lot of people that, that Hillary would win. So the morning after the election was a really interesting experience for me in a couple of ways. And I will tell you that story. So I went into the office and there was a security guard who I always walk by every morning, talk to. And he, he came over and cried on my shoulder. I did not expect to have that, that happen when I was walking into the office. And there was a real fear because one of the talking points through the election was the swamp and the kind of the bureaucrat and this mass of government as as being the problem. And so I think a lot of government workers felt that very personally. And I went up to my my office and we had a morning meeting. And my experience working in countries in conflict really kicked in in that moment because one of the things that is an honor in this country and it is a gift and just because we've been giving it to ourselves for the life of this country does not make it not a big deal and not precious is the peaceful transition of power. 
And so I decided that the, that it was, it was my responsibility to do as good a handover as a chief of staff. And one of the things that the chief of staff does is to make space for the landing team and to orient them to succeed. That morning at our staff meeting, I talked about the, the peaceful transition of power and how we are, we are entrusted with that almost sacred uh, opportunity. The second thing that happened is that after that meeting, I went down and I got in a taxi to go over to the White House. They were pulling the chiefs of staff together from the different agencies and trying to get a sense of what do we need to do and what are the, what should the, um, uh, what, what are you needing to be able to support your different agencies and departments? And I got in the cab and I'm a, I'm a talker. So I, uh, I asked the cab driver how his day was. And he said, it is great. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. I need some of that today. Tell me why it is great. From later conversation, he's a black Muslim Sudanese immigrant who is my cab driver. And he said, Trump got elected and I am so excited. And he was, he was like playing tunes. He was so excited. And I was like, this is amazing. Tell (laughs) me more. Why are you so excited? And so we did, we had a, we had a great conversation about Uber and his concerns about transitions in the market and the, the sort of like economy where he worked and the importance of business and how he felt like business was going to grow. And in the growth of business, there was more need for taxis. And so he just saw a lot of opportunity in his future and was just really excited about the direction of the country. Half the country felt that way. It's really instructive. Yes. That's right. That's right. I think I think what you just said is really important. Not not a not a tiny sliver of the country, half of the country, whether or not Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump had won half the country. Uh, and, and again, like we can talk about the, 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 the numbers, the electoral college versus this sort of like popular vote, but we are, we're not talking about a small part of the country. We are talking about a substantial percentage of the country was really excited. If it's 40%, it doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and um, it was a really important uh, start to life after that election. And, uh, and it started me on a kind of path of talking to Trump voters uh, pretty consistently, sort of daily at the beginning and then fairly regularly to say, what is it that you are excited about? And then to identify shared values, even if we take different actions, what are the shared values and how do we build from that? So somehow this took you back to Princeton and to uh, to starting something there. Yeah, yes, Um so these conversations started to build into uh, what then became the Bridging Divides Edi- Initiative. And the premise for that was actually that I'd worked in countries all around the world where when I flew to those countries uh, as the as the um, acting director for the Office of Transition Initiatives at USAID, I would land and get a briefing that says, here is the political violence here's where there's conflict and here are resources to respond to that. Here's where there's civil society. Here's where there's uh, security. All, all of those pieces would be in sort of like your opening briefer. In the United States, we had the Federal Bureau of Investigation uh, tracks hate crimes, 
but the those can be two years out of date by the time the data is released because they have spend a year after they gather the data cleaning it and making sure that it's what they want it to be. In addition to that, it's not mandatory uh, to, to collect or at the time. It had lots of holes in it and it was not actionable data and it was just on hate crimes, not on political violence. So I partnered with the group that I had worked with in Afghanistan, ACLID, to start their gathering data on where is their political violence in the United States. I think it's armed conflict location event data. And they started gathering political violence data in the United States in 2020. And then we put together by reaching out to a set of coalitions and getting their data on civil society, like NGOs, uh, nonprofits that are around the country trying to map out where are these nonprofits and faith leaders, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that would be that those resources. And now these are not people who themselves would say, I am a peace builder or I prevent conflict from happening. Even now, I think they wouldn't say that that's what their role is. There's a real diversity of, of people in there, mediators, community builders, librarians, like a whole set of different individuals and organizations. But these are the resources that work on belonging and bridging that are also the the sort of network that in times of crisis repurpose to try to de-escalate and prevent violence from sort of metastasizing. How did that go? Well, we we fixed it all, obviously. (laughs) What a relief. Uh, (laughs) What's funny is I started out interviewing, uh, a lot of the kind of resistance folks and political entrepreneurs on the left and party operatives in the Democratic Party. And I realized along the way that I also wanted to talk to people doing bridging type work. And actually, one of the earliest interviews was with my sister, who was kind of doing that through a journalism startup called Spaceship Media that interviewed people across the divide and and sold stories about you know bringing together women in the bay area and women in alabama who were trump voters and having them talk and understand each other and there's a lot of things like that i've come subsequently mm-hmm. to, to mm-hmm. find out and sort of the nonpartisan and the bridging is also as well as sort of the partisan fight these are both part of my head now like we need both in a certain ways we need to be in operating in multiple arenas to try to stop the country from disintegrating or or moving to a, a, some version of authoritarianism. How does you, what you were doing fit into that ecosystem that had existed and, and has grown a lot? Yeah, I do think that that there are lots of different tools and that we need a lot of different tools. I think this is one of those moments where the challenges are sufficient to require the very best of us and every tool that we can bring to bear in this space. I think that where this fits in partially is what we were talking about, the sort of 40% of of the country. Um, I'm not willing to... um, Can't write them off. I don't see how we succeed as a functioning country where we don't see the humanity of... uh, of 40%, uh, 60%, you know, like 30%. These are huge numbers. And I'm going to say something that that is taking 
taking this this concept to an extreme, but but please see it as that. But nonetheless, why I feel like it's important. I I had a conversation once uh, recently with a friend who said, I just I just wish that Trump voters would disappear. I just wish they weren't part of my country. Now, as a sentiment, I think that that it was intended as as sort of letting off steam as a policy that looks like Pol Pot. If you make that... It's ethnic cleansing. It's political cleansing. It's a horrendous idea. That's just as bad as any idea. That's not what they meant. That's right? not what they it, meant, right? No, but, 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 but it's... But you don't... If they said that, we would be horrified. Right. Yep. I have a lot of friends across diverse ideologies and, uh, and, and other experiences in the world and, and have... I, I have had people say that on both ends of the political spectrum. And the crazy thing is, like, I mean, I know Trump supporters, my plumber in Vermont. They are nice people, right? Like, I mean, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene is not. But, you know, when when you these people care about their spouse, they care about their local area. They're trying to do a good job on their work, by and large. They are not different. They are, are, they are fellow citizens. They are enmeshed, I believe, in the moment in a lens that is, uh, well, every single one of them is different, you know, how they came to that and they have different reasons. Some of those reasons are legitimate. Some of them are, are, Receptive. are less. Yes. And, you know, your taxi driver was probably a very charming person with some point right? A reasonable point. We cannot send him home. Yeah. 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 I can see a lot of this, the current dysfunction coming from a type of dehumanization. And it's that psychological step that you need to do physical harm to another. You have to stop your sense of their humanity. So that's where you worry more about political violence, but steps, steps up from that. That's how you get bad policy. You know, that's how that's how you get dysfunction and gridlock. That's how you are unable to address these challenges. And the challenges that we face right now, I think, are arguably the hardest that we have in in the life of this country. When you're looking at climate change and gun control and covid and other health issues, they they don't know borders. They they are massive. They require leadership. They require in internal national solidarity to be able to work at the global scale. We don't need to be part of escalating a cycle of polarization. We need to figure out how not to. Yeah. I think that, again, maybe this is like a little bit of the Buddhist, back to that part of the conversation, but a little bit of this to me is not because we're inherently angry people. I think that we have, we had an experience with World War One and World War Two that was globally changing. And there was a, a, a deep fear, generational fear, that we were going to just live in perpetual cycles of global war until we killed all of us. After World War II, that turned into Bretton Woods and the United Nations and an unprecedented level of international cooperation that lived even through the Cold War, as like complicated as that was, it hung on because it was so powerfully felt. And the generation that set that up has fairly recently died. 
and uh, is replaced by generations, multiple generations of people who lived throughout that period, the longest period of modern stability in the world. And a lot of people in that system failed or weren't succeeding, weren't getting what they needed. And we're trying to say to the system, the system is not working. And the system was unwilling to relinquish that stability to be able to respond to some of those things that weren't needing. So in so many ways, I think that what you see rolling out in the United States, you see rolling out in countries around the world and this sort of leaning into the strong man who is willing to be the bully against the system, that is not unique to the United States. To me, it's one manifestation of it. I interviewed a candidate for Senate in Missouri yesterday, Democrat, a populist Democrat, Kuntz. And he was noting thing, uh, you know, a terrible situation with water and sewer in the boot heel of his state and the frustration of people that things were not getting fixed and the frustration in the northern part of the state with the monopoly, big ag messing up the hog farming business for small enterprises, just parochial stuff going on that is leading people, in his view, to distrust institutions, and often rightly, right? And how, and, and so he's running against institutions. And I have such mixed feelings about that tactic. I understand it. It's been happening more and more and more, but we're also undermining these institutions that are important. It's part of our politics right now. Yeah. It's, it's often popular to be able to like beat up on government. That's why I love the underdog. Um, so that isn't unique, but I do think that with violence, you basically live in, in, it's not like, okay, now we're going to have violence or now we're going to have crisis. Like it, it is a much more complex system than that, but, but you, you live in kind of like strata of risk and, in this higher strata of polarization, and as we are saying, we don't trust the systems of governance, it means that you can have things like actually, these elections are not valid, that might have been dismissed before, and it's not dismissed now, because these institutions are suspect, and we don't have trust in elections or government or media, or each other, or the police that might pull us back from some of that. So all of this conversation so far has been preamble. Uh, <laughs> healthy preamble right there. <laughs> I feel very honored to have the chance to talk to people and understand who they are before then I ask them about their current work. And you're, you are currently the executive director of Common Ground USA. What is that? And what are you up to there? Um, you are not the first person to ask me, what is that? (laughs) What do you do? Um, So Search for Common Ground is the world's largest and oldest non-government peace-building organization in the world. And um, I met it in Liberia, and it was supporting something called Talking Drum Studio. And that radio program was one of the most powerful programs that I saw building social cohesion and supporting peaceful elections in Liberia. I then continued to follow their work around the world. And as we saw greater breakdown in social cohesion in the United States, I really wanted 
people who truly understood the kind of long-term deep investment that isn't about I'll talk to you and then we'll come to a compromise and then everything's going to be okay. Very serious peace builders are not group huggers. They have lived through war uh, and come out on the other side. And I wanted that kind of approach in the United States. So when they started a program here, they had a, a long history of working um, in different pockets of this, but this was a new program that they started this past year to try to address that that decrease in social cohesion and shift not just from like preventing violence, but into uh, in this long term effort into what is called conflict transformation, or you can think of it as like a self perpetuating positive cycle in society. And societies do that, you know, they 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 get into what we are in right now, which is a, a bit of a vicious cycle, and they can then shift into a virtuous cycle. And it takes a just a ton of work. At the beginning of this conversation, we talked about um, where I'm from, and that 150 years after the Civil War, the kind of threads of that still live there. When the World Development Report of 2011 reported on conflict states, they th- said it took on average 45 years for a country to transition from being a post-conflict country to a country that is uh, kind of just considered stable. 45 years is multiple generations. This work is hard. It is long. It is the kind of thing where your patience is quite tried. And it also requires sort of like strategic work uh, on the front end. So if I could be a little bit clearer there, what we're doing on the one hand is working on what I would call building resilience, thinking about how to prevent violence in the short term. Political violence is, is, is a way of thinking of crisis. So it doesn't have to be just thought of as harm done to another individual or to property. It's the kind of like things that, that, that grind at our society. And then on the, on the other hand, starting that work to kind of transform in the long run. I talked to Peter Coleman, who led me to you, and he said something about the importance of kind of time and you and certain initiatives can't work until sometimes until things have gotten bad enough for people to realize it. But you said something also about the urgency of, of prevention, right? Because if you can arrest something before it gets horrible, it's obviously way better than going through something up to a civil war where, you know, millions of people could die or, you know, uh, people are chopping each other's heads off. Are we in a place where we can prevent this vicious cycle in your view? Yes. And the reason is that we, we tend to look back and see the moment of transition as a singular event, the moment that the Berlin Wall fell. That is that moment of transition. But there were so many things that happened prior to that that made that moment the tipping point. I think about Black Lives Matter and that in elections seven years earlier, you couldn't get a politician to say Black Lives Matter or you couldn't get a substantial number of them to. And when George Floyd was killed, he was not the first Black man to be killed. 
but there was infrastructure and there was a lot of work that had been put in ahead of time so that that moment was a catalytic one and that there was momentum built around that. I think that crises are really interesting moments. I sometimes use the analogy of, uh, well, before I say that, I'll say, so, so, you know, a crisis is tough because it decreases your trust often. And in that moment of the crisis, you, there's a lot of questions and, and you, uh, you kind of retrench all of those things. So, so like we can think about January 6th in that moment, there's a real question of like, well, what's going to happen now? People really receded to their comfortable places, to their teams. And that could have been It wasn't, but it could have been a transition moment. It could have been the moment in which we said as a country, what has gotten us here, we reject. We choose a different way forward. In a good way or in a bad way? Or both? Both, right? Like it could have been been that we threw the election into chaos. It went to the House. They picked Trump. And he continued down the path. We could have gone to a path. constitutional crisis and then had, had self-perpetuating violence. Yes. Or, or we could have uh, spent the first three months of the next presidency reforming a bunch of stuff, putting up, which we sh- freaking should have done, fixing the Electoral Count Act and, and the Republicans repudiating Trump, right? Which they kind of almost, almost did, seemed like for a second. On the cusp of it. And, you know, individual Americans could could say, I am not going to demonize the political other. I am done with it. Like, we, we are done. We are done. We are moving into a different space. We got neither of those. We got... That's correct. We got a, a slow-rolling, ongoing, slowly-worsening fiasco. I think we're in a slowly-worsening place, but each new crisis is both a moment in which those three options are available. You can get much worse, you can continue on the trajectory you're on, or you can get much better. And the trick is to turn it into a turning point, right? To say, this is the crisis in which we actually are going to shift. And all ends of wars are made of that. That is what it is to say, today, we choose to deal with our differences by putting the guns down and going to vote. That is a fascinating and incredible miracle in the world, but it happens again and again and again, and it can happen here. What I'm thinking is it's so much easier to destroy than to build. You can blow up a building in one minute. It takes two years to build it, right? A big building. There are a bunch of people who are assiduously trying to blow up the system right now. How do the forces of building, of positive construction of our country win in in an instance like that? What are the dynamics that allow that? So we were just talking a bit about January 6th and how there was this question of you know what's going to happen there. And then a bunch of things that we thought would go wrong didn't go wrong. And that was not because we got lucky, or it could be partially that, but it was also on the backs of a huge amount of work of people really focused on making sure that it did not get worse. 
and uh, making sure that anyone they could get to put out talking points across political spectra, like all Bus- kinds the of business people. world, faith leaders. I mean, people, people, even, even in. Mike Pence and Dan Quayle and all the people that are getting purged. <laughs> Raffensperger didn't get purged. I know. I think that we can live in a kind of fear about how things are, are getting worse. But one of my experiences both here and in countries in conflict is that as we are sort of facing that worsening direction, so too are we forging the response and that that is powerful and that it is compelling and that people are drawn to and have a sense of the preciousness of the country. And there was a sense of like, it can't happen here. Uh, and for years, that was that was part of what I felt like the main thing that I did was to say, like, you know, we, we are special, but we are not in some ways. And it can happen. These things can happen. So how do you deal with that? But if I can if I can say one more thing about the, the turning point. Uh, because I think there's this sense that we have to hit a kind of rock bottom to turn around and things have to get sufficiently bad to turn around. I don't think that's right. I don't think that that rock bottom is a physical place. I think rock bottom is by definition the place you got to where you decided to turn around. And so uh, there are lots of moments in our history, in the world in which things have gotten sufficiently bad to turn around where they have not turned into civil war. Yeah. I mean, we do draw on incredibly deep democratic tradition here. I mean, I think like uh, the judge, Michael Luddick, but like conservative judges who have stood up in this moment, the people who just cannot go along with this, there are a lot. There are a lot at the local level and the national level and just regular people. What I'm not clear about, and I don't want to leave this interview without understanding it, is so what do you guys do? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think I mentioned that we began last October in this new phase. So some of the work that that search does is this longer term work. We've started a program called First Year Connect at the college level. There was a mass major demographic shift at a university. They they hadn't really done some of the prep work ahead of time. And so this program uh, after a lot of of conflict they they had this program that started at the beginning of the pandemic and it is a program to kind of build leadership skills and the ability to have conversation across differences in an open space that increases freedom of speech, but it also increases a, a kind of safety to be able to have that. It's a different way of talking about things that isn't about debate. It's about trying to learn and understand. That's long-term work. You know, that's, that's building skills for leadership for, for generation. And if that goes uh, national idea be, being, let's switch this out for the kind of single text uh, orientation and have an orientation that intentionally is in this moment where kids are exposed to new ideas, different people, more so than they have been to that point in their lives, have that be a really concerted effort and a tool built for students. That's one of the programs that we do on the longer term side. And then we also are working with um, faith leaders, uh, grass tops leaders, thinking about how do we build cohorts 
of people who can, in a crisis, trust each other and can de-escalate. So part of what turns violence into something even more scary, for example, is you don't know where it's going to happen, but there's that moment when it does happen. And then there's a lot of confusion around it and a lot of concern. So you can have somebody who says, I hear that the other side is going to show up with guns. And when they hear that the other side is going to show up with guns, they are going to show up with guns. And when you have two sides in the same place, showing up with guns, with confusion, that is when people get hurt. There seems to be um, some history of foreign actors trying to have what they perceive as two different sides of our society show up at events that they concocted to try to generate that in 2016, for example. Yeah, we we do have uh, a a documented sense that that those who would do harm to Americans are trying to point out to Americans why we should do harm to ourselves. So I would just offer to us that we reject that. You know, it is not people who are trying to help us that are using that strategy. It's people who want us to be weak. Yes. Um, how big is your part of? of this enterprise? How many people work there? What kind of throw weight is there? My part of the enterprise has just started and is very small. The enterprise itself is in 20 countries. Uh, I'm drawing on teams from across the country, but we're less than 10 people right now with plans to expand. Yep. Um, It would seem like this is the kind of thing that could find funding to grow. Is that something that you do? How do you build this as as an executive director or is that like part of yeah. the issue? Yeah, I'd like to answer this in a, in a comparative way. Uh, in Germany, which is the size of Germany, they invested a billion dollars over three years to prevent extremist violence. Not, not to respond to, but to prevent, which is not about security. It's uh, it's about belonging. It's about opportunities. It's about off-ramps. It's about a whole set of societal things uh, to improve that, that kind of weaving, um, or at least not just about this. The United States uh, has funding that it grants in the kind of like $50 million range to civil society around the country. Now that's on the security side, that comes out of Homeland Security. We have no department of weaving society. There's sort of like no equivalent of those things. So I think one of the things that I would say here is that that a lot of this funding comes from philanthropy, that philanthropy has, uh, has recently been increasingly investing in this space, but that the amount of investment I think we talked at the beginning about scale is a government thing. There are a lot of things that are not partisan uh, that don't need to happen by government actors, but that government should be substantially supporting at a scale that I don't think that philanthropy can meet. Is there talk of that in the Biden administration? Was there anything in Build Back Better? Is this being overlooked? Yeah. I, I do think there's talk of it, um, uh, you know, and from a lot of different places. There's a, 
uh, a bill introduced by Kilmer to try to have 25 million go to AmeriCorps to in- increase bridging there. There's funding the Electoral Reform Act that is looking at um, supporting elections and civic and de- democratic education. These things take political will. And I think that we're not putting the kind of energy into this that it deserves. Is, is it something that you think could be supported on a bipartisan basis? It feels to me like there's no reason why it can't be, but things do fall into the partisan fight so easily. These get bipartisan support. What they don't get is sufficient support. And so we have to uh, we have to reward our elected leaders for choosing things that have bipartisan support. I, it's so hard to get prevention funded, right? It's it, it's we tend to wait for crisis and then and then put money in. Yes, and that is much much more expensive, not only in the cost financially, but in some of those moral costs and. We know that this is hard, but I I will often say I want all the urgency of national security and not the tools. And I don't mean that those tools don't play a role. It's just that we have so many more choices at our fingertips right now that are not security related, that are that are just positives. They only do good things. Uh, investing in community, investing in livelihoods, those those kinds of things, those are the types of work that you would do in the prevention space to prevent crises and violence. And those are the things that I think will make a difference here. It's just that we need to decide to face another direction. So can you do enough with your team to matter? That is the question, is it not? Uh, The answer is no. I personally cannot do enough with my team. Uh, This is an effort that lives with millions around the country. And the good news is that I am not in a crowded field, but uh, there are thousands of organizations around the country that are working on this kind of work. And I do think that it is possible. I do think that it is possible that in collaboration, we can do this change. Well, it has been a great honor to talk to you today. Is there a question that I didn't ask that I should have? I have questions for you. I would be interested in having some insight into all of the interviews that you're doing to try to understand what is going on here. What do you think that I'm missing? I mean, I don't know that you're missing something. Nobody can get the full picture. Nobody. I was talking to Ruth ben Giat, who wrote a book called Strong Men, and she's a professor of Italian history. and And she's talking about the authoritarian playbook in the last hundred years and how Trump is running some of that. She's steeped in, in this history and she knows so much about it. But if I ask her questions that are kind of political consulting questions, it's hard for her to say what exactly to do. We have so many things going on simultaneously and I'm trying to see some of them. We have our partisan battle, the electoral battle, which makes a huge difference. Like if we, if we end up with a Republican Congress that 
starts to impeach Biden and do fake investigations. Like there's that whole world that is not your world. That's not your job to fight. Part of me is like, if you're not fighting that fight, that's the crucial, important battle that is imminent. Right. And, and if, and it so much matters, but there's so many things that we can't control, like what's happening in the economy and, and Russia invading and COVID and inflation because of all that and not getting things through Congress or whatever, we're likely to get absolutely slammed, right? And go backwards. So we kind of need everybody to be doing, both fighting that fight, the people that are in that corner and the people who are building the muscles for resisting what happens legislatively, what happens legally if we lose power, if. Trump or DeSantis wins next time, it, you know, I, we're going to need people, the people doing things like what you're doing to take the edges off of the direction, right? I'm sure I'm missing so much of this, even though I'm, I'm asking lots of people. What we can all understand is that we have to do our part of it. We have to fight the part of the fight we can. It's the country of 350 million plus people. We can't do it all. And it's hard to calculate who's going to matter. It might matter who we come up with to run for office and how they lead in one person in the right place, saying the right thing, getting in front of the right tank can change the course of history. And other people, what they did doesn't get seen as crucial. I mean. I just want people to understand, as you do, that we're at a pivotal point and and people have to see that big picture and educate themselves and try to do their little part to turn the ship in the right direction. And there's lots of ways to be part of that. Just talking on a friendly basis to the person across the aisle so that they don't shoot you later, you know, like it could be part of it. And hopefully it doesn't get to that. All of these pieces, I don't, it's so complex. I don't know. I, I don't have, I don't have the answers. I like to be the person asking the questions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, in fairness, I think that getting the questions right is one of the hardest parts. I wonder about why we don't ask the question, why would Trump be attractive for someone? What What is it about Donald Trump? He's a performer. People are not happy. They want their own bludgeon. He is a bull in a china shop. I don't know. Some people want him because they want pro-life justices. Some people want him because he's entertaining. Some people want him because... He moves the country in a conservative direction. Some people want him because they can't stand what the Democratic Party, in their view of it, has turned into, and they don't like, you know, some of the excesses on the left. I don't know at all. Uh, we none of us do. Yeah, but you've had seven hundred and fifty conversations about this, and I think that's. Uh, I I just I commend that effort. I think that that's a start. You know what happens when you read a book and you have a conversation, you kind of get left with the residue of it, right? And that's mm -hmm. 
I think it would be, I wish I had the synthesizing skills to pull that all together and maybe over time I can get there or somebody else can. Someone else listen to all this, write something good based on it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. My work here is done. (laughs) I always feel good after talking to someone like you who has the experiences and the motivation and some of the tools to do their part. It's inspiring. Keep going, you know, and maybe, maybe you'll be the person running that billion dollar part of the federal government. When we put it together, take some of the air out of the, the inflating tires of, of extremism that we're experiencing. Mm. Boy, is that a, Mm. that was a difficult metaphor, but (laughs) <laughs> that was, but you did, you did, not, you did it was a struggle. <laughs> I guess the one thing that I would just leave with is that, again, I think we, we often think of the leader and we think of the hero uh, and we undercount the bureaucrat or we undercount the citizen. And you can't choose the path of the nation for the nation right now, but you, you can choose to fight hard for what you believe in, but to not dehumanize the person who doesn't believe in that. The moment for me that underscored that was the Women's March. And I was down in Washington, D.C. on the mall. People were variously traumatized by the election results, but there was so much love on the streets. And my presence with my family and a couple friends didn't matter, right? Because there were so many other people, but they mattered to me and we were equal parts of that. I think we need that kind of fellow feeling and peacefulness to, to win out. Here, 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 here's to joy. <laughs> a good point probably on which to close. So thank you very much. That was Neilan Parker. Neilan is at sfcg.org slash common-ground-usa. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.